This is the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agribusiness. If you're curious about innovations in ag tech, rural entrepreneurship, ag sustainability, or food security, this is the show for you. Let's get started. How's it going? Thank you so much for downloading this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich. I am an ag recruiter. So if you know anybody looking to hire or be hired in ag tech or agribusiness, send me an email, tim at aggrad.com. This podcast is a part of the Farm and Rural Ag Network. So if you like podcasts about agriculture or vlogs or blogs, check them out over at farmruralag.com. Hey, as you know, I've been on a recent kick or a fascination, if you will, with with water and water issues and how water might affect the future of irrigated agriculture specifically. And so wanted to bring on at least one guest this year, maybe more, I don't know, um, that is doing something related to water innovations. What does water tech sort of look like? And we have a fantastic guest on here today in Leif Chastain, who is the co-founder and chief operating officer of Waterbit. Waterbit is an automated irrigation solution that helps growers save time, money, and of course water while improving yield and quality. They have helped growers in California that grow everything from asparagus to rice to wine grapes and and sort of everywhere in between with their water needs. It's a really interesting concept and Leaf has a very interesting background. He comes from a background first with the U.S. Marine Corps where he was a navigator on C-130s. That led him into a career of logistics and operations, ultimately leading him more into software and IoT systems. So very, very fascinating background. And he's going to start off by telling us a little bit about how Waterbit got started between him and his co-founders. Enjoy this interview with Leif Chastain, COO of Waterbit. Well, we met on a, we met on a previous project and I had left a, a company that I had founded just, uh, just prior to uh, to us founding Waterbit. And um, I was kind of on the sidelines trying to figure out what I was going to do next. And my co-founder called me and, and asked and, you know, asked what uh, was, was next in my future. And I said, well, I'd like to do something that is, you know, makes an impact, has an impact on, on society, has a positive impact, and, and gives me a place where I can kind of leave a mark. And he responded and said, well, if you're going to do that, you know, it's probably a big problem. And that's probably going to be dealing with air quality and or, or water and in some capacity. And he said, so what, what do you think it'd be, air or water? And uh, I kind of walked away and thought about it for a week and called him back and said, well, you know, it'd be water because you can actually do something about it. Um, mm-hmm. It's easier to control. You can measure. You can come up with systems to actually solve problems in water. And uh, it turned out that he'd been working on some sensor technology in his garage. And I, I came down to San Jose and, and looked at what he had been working on and did some additional market research and, and realized that, that uh, you know, there really were, you know, still big problems to be solved. And, um, you know, that was kind of the nexus of it. it. We spent the next year and a half working on uh, market, understanding the market, market fit, really figuring out what the pain points were and, you know, wh- where we thought we could make an impact with the knowledge that we had from uh, a technology background basis. And uh, yeah, that's, that was kind of how we got the whole thing going. 
And where did you really sign up, sort of find product market fit as far as, you know, who the right market for a product like this was, what the right pain point was? You know, obviously, I, I, that's a really probably complicated answer, but uh, how did you arrive at the solution you have now? Maybe share with us a little bit more about that solution. Well, I'll tell you that, that it's quite a process to go through. We did it by conducting dozens and dozens of interviews, and, and we started out actually thinking that we were going to take the technology and put it into a form factor that could be used by consumers. And in 2015, as you recall, California was in the midst of a, of a crazy drought. And, you know, driving around uh, this part of California anyway, here in San Jose, the you know, homeowners were allowing their, their lawns and landscaping and trees to die. And, and we were looking at that and thinking, well, you know, we certainly could fix that problem by deploying sensor technology that would allow a, a homeowner to, you know, make adjustments to their, to their uh, home irrigation and, and keep their landscaping alive. So we went out and talked to a bunch of homeowners. And what we came to learn was that while it's a problem for homeowners, it just doesn't rise to the level that, uh, you know, that they're searching for a solution to the problem. Um, at the same time, we had been talking to a number of farmers in the Central Valley, and what became very, very clear to us was that without water, you don't farm. And water is the one lever that has perhaps the most impact on the overall quality and you know yield uh, of the crop. And you know managing that component is is really critical. It's a critical piece of what they do. And the way that they're doing it is, I won't say that it's completely rudimentary, but but uh, it certainly hasn't moved as far along as you know other components of precision agriculture have planting and that sort of thing. So, you know, really finding market fit was was uh, a lot of grinding over you know eighteen months of talking to hundreds of people and trying to sort out what the real problems were and how we could take what we understood about the world and apply it to the problem. And what exactly does Waterbit do? I know it's a sensor for moisture, but uh, tell me how it works. So sensing is a, is a portion of it, but what we do is we build, design, build, and deploy uh, today automated irrigation solutions. And an automated irrigation solution in the context of farming means that we collect sensor inputs in the field. Uh, that includes things like soil moisture. It includes pressure, other weather type sensor inputs, we take that information and we try to make that actionable by enabling a grower then to automatically open or control valves on the farm and to create and deploy schedules that can be uh, managed and monitored over time. So if you look at uh, the, our world, you know, the primary market that we're going after today is really drip irrigation uh, or drip irrigated crops. And that's our current focus. We intend to take what we've built and then apply it to other types of irrigation where we've got gate valves or we're using alfalfa valves or that kind of thing. But, but the whole idea, the whole concept here is you have a farm and a farm is in, in effect a factory. It's a factory that produces food. And we're trying to bring to the farm a level of automation similar to what you would see in a, in a, a high-tech manufacturing facility today. And so with that, I, I know you have these little kind of, they're, they're solar powered sensors as part of the system, right? Yeah, absolutely. And then my big question is, so you've got these sensors out in the field and let's say I've, I've got this, uh, this half section of mm -hmm. these drip irrigated vegetables. And I know my sensor on the far south end is saying it needs water and none of my sensors are needing, none of my other sensors are saying I need to irrigate. How do I just irrigate that one area? 
<laughs> so, so you're hitting on the you're hitting on the uh, holy grail, if you will. You know, precision planting. I'll, I'll take a a little bit of a circuitous route to answering the question. But mm -hmm. if you look at precision planting, right, the idea is is twofold. Um, you can use precision planting to build rows and plant over the top of buried drip irrigators where, you know, you can't physically see those, but the tractor knows exactly where it is. You can also vary the number of seeds per acre. You can vary um, uh, the spacing between the rows and that sort of thing to really take advantage and optimize the available water in the soil and the soil uh, capacity or the soil holding capacity uh, that the grower is dealing with. And what you just asked is exactly the situation that we see where, where there is and there are significant differences in the soil and the soil types related to or, or the soil types on any given piece of land. So when you look at you know, any particular field, you're going to see different types of soil, sandier soil, more clay soil. And uh, each one of those has a different water holding capacity and a different ability to support plants. And so one of the major things that we've been able to do is to enable a grower to literally take a field and break it into smaller components by putting valves, uh, wirelessly controlled valves, where we literally can split drip lines uh, right down the middle of a field and then irrigate one side versus the other side using a different prescription. And um, our view of the world is growers will install drip irrigation systems to match the soil because they can, they can do that type of mapping in advance when they're designing the field. Today, their problem is to do that would require them to put a lot of valves in, which would make it very, very difficult for them to control from a labor perspective and from a schedule management perspective. But what we do is we enable them to now think of the soil and then to try to optimize the water delivery system to match that, to match that soil so that they can run different irrigation sets on different soil types and do it in a way that uh, doesn't require an army of people to go flip valves on and off continuously. Hmm. Today's episode is made possible through the support of AgriPulse. Farming used to be only about doing chores and planting a crop, but not anymore. Today, government regulations and ag policy has just as much impact on the business of agriculture as Mother Nature, and sometimes is less predictable. Congress, USDA, EPA, FDA, and other government agencies are impacting agriculture, and AgriPulse can help keep you up to date on the rules and regulations before they become law. For 15 years, AgriPulse has been reporting on ag issues and policies in Washington, D.C., Sacramento, California, and across the U.S., and is the leading resource for ag and food policy information. You can test drive AgriPulse at no obligation. Simply visit AgriPulse.com and click on the free trial button. Your one-month trial is absolutely free, and you will start getting the information you need to better manage your farm or ag organization. So visit agripulse.com, that's A-G-R-I-P-U-L-S-E.com, and start your free trial today. Thank you so much to Agripulse for supporting the Future of Agriculture podcast. As you were doing your customer discovery with farmers, uh, what did you notice about where, where are they feeling the pain? I mean, generally speaking, and I know this is a big generalization, but generally speaking, water is not expensive. So how is the pain point you solve sort of manifesting itself for your customers? Uh, there's several, and you're exactly right. The water cost is not is not the problem. And generally speaking, water availability doesn't seem to be the problem, although there, you know, there's that's a whole different topic in terms of water rights and that kind of thing. But what we see is a couple of things. Um, number one, irrigating requires labor. 
And a lot of the farms that we're dealing with today are larger growers. And, you know, you're talking about operations that are spread out sometimes over tens of miles and literally the physical transport time it takes just to move from field to field and control irrigation sets requires a lot of bodies. If a grower determines that they want to change the way that they're irrigating, one of the major limitations in their ability to make that change is if they can uh, staff uh, enough people to be able to make that implement or execute that schedule, at least in the drip world. It's not the same with pivots, right? It's a different game. But being able to control um, the irrigation, being able to understand how much water was put on, the bigger pain points that we see come, I think, around compliance, wanting to understand and know that they're putting uh, nutrients on the soil and they're not flushing that out through the bottom, through the root zone. So they want to make sure that they're, they're putting just enough water on when they, when they fertilize, that they've got that, that nutrient-rich water available to the plant. They want to be able to track that. One of the other pain points is that watering is one of the major contributors to the disease pressure uh, for, for a variety of crops. So in almonds, for example, you know, long irrigation sets are, uh, create conditions that are more conducive to certain diseases than if those irrigation sets are spread out where we don't end up with standing water or really moist topsoil where you get uh, growth of biological badness. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think the real pain point that we are solving is that growers are beginning to become more sophisticated in terms of how they want to apply water. And they understand intuitively that doing so results in healthier plants better crop. And, um, you know, they are looking for ways to enable them to do that, enable themselves to do that. I don't know how true this is, but it's been several years now, over a decade ago, I was talking to somebody in the, in the irrigation business, and he was saying that they had sort of struggled uh, in California specifically, because what they found was some growers thought that if they used less water, because they were allowed to use less water, they would lose sort of shares of water in the future. Like they almost didn't want to be more efficient because they didn't want to lose access to that water. Has that come up? Is that a real thing? You know, I've, I've heard that uh, as well. And I've heard, I've heard that actually a couple of times in the last, in the last few years. Um, and I have to be honest, I don't know if it's a thing. <laughs> <laughs> You've heard rumblings of it, but never had a farmer just straight out tell you that. Yeah. 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 I, I think, you know, I think what the grower will tell you is that they want to put the water on the, on the crop that the crop needs. Hmm. Um, they're not, they're not going to put extra water for fear of losing any access to water. What they're going to do is they're, you know, they are going to try to irrigate in a manner that, you know, really is optimal. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem that uh, that they're ultimately having to deal with is is the complexity of being able to create the schedules today. Many, you know, many growers have to give their irrigator a sheet of paper that tells them which valves to go open and close, and it's difficult for them to know how much water was put on. So, planning irrigation, planning into the future what you're going to do, knowing when it's going to be a, you're going to be at a critical point to put water on the crop when you have other agronomic activities that you need to do in that same field. There's all the you know there's balancing and trade offs that are constantly going on. It's a it's a complex system, particularly when you're dealing you know with large large patches of land. So I don't know that the guys are gonna are are gonna water you know more just to to maintain water rights. I think what they're gonna do is try to try to water exactly what's necessary to get the best outcome that they can get. Mm-hmm. In preparation for this interview, I was on your website and I saw a video with a familiar face and Greg Van Dyke, who I know yeah, is absolutely. a uh, a rice farmer in Northern California. Uh, I, I would imagine by, by nature being a rice farmer, he would be a flood irrigator. So do you have a solution that already kind of works on flood, on flood irrigation or is it still just drip? 
So today we are in DRIP, um, but we are looking at uh, some technologies to be able to deploy. In fact, we've got some prototype work going on for Rice. I, I have to tell you that the work that Greg is doing is fantastic, A, on a variety of reasons. But, you know, this concept of doing alternate wet-dry rice growing has a couple of massive impacts, one of which is just a, a significant reduction in the total water use. But, you know, the other one is that by alternating between dry and wet, they're able to, to reduce the total amount of methane production. So Greg Greg's a great, uh, is a great guy. He's been working with us uh, quite extensively. We continue, expect to, to continue that relationship and to continue to work in rice. I see, I see for us rice being a, a major market probably in the next, you know, 12 to 24 months in terms of go to go to market for, for water bit. It's, it's one of the largest crops, you know, the, the, I believe that uh, rice is the is the greatest caloric output crop of anything grown in the world today, um, and it's and it's you know uh, grown around the globe. So it's a great it's a great place for us to go, and the same technologies that we're using today are are certainly applicable to growers of rice. California is obviously a huge market for irrigated agriculture. Has that been where your focus has been thus far, primarily? It has been, um, you know, as a startup, you you go through uh, the winding road and the, the hills and the valleys of uh, of startup land. We have very specifically tried to stay close to home, uh, primarily because as we mature the technologies, you know, our customers in our backyard, we can provide a, a superior support and a superior experience to them. As the uh, products harden, we absolutely intend to expand uh, across the U.S. and then into other geographies. Now, I know there are others in the precision irrigation space that try to sort of combine, you know, some element of sensors with with hardware, software, you know, type of mix. How does Waterbit differentiate in in that sort of uh, market landscape? There are a number of technical things that come into play when you start looking at farming. So just touch on a couple of the key differentiators here, but the the primary ones are that, you know, a farmer wants to farm. They don't want to be a network administrator. They don't want to have to put dozens of cell devices out and then deal with uh, mesh networking or, or, for that matter, any other sort of networking technology, right? They simply want to open and close valves, turn bumps on and off, you know, fertigate, and then do all the other stuff that they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, they want the technology to be easy to use and, and to work. So, um, and there are two components to that. Networking is not a given on a farm. If you've ever spent any time out with growers, you you learn very, very quickly that they tend to be rural areas. Um, the infrastructure tends to be somewhat limited. And um, you can't always be sure that you're going to have cell service or uh, network access. So being able to provide a network across a farm is, is important. But the second piece is that the technology that you use, I like to say, just disappears. It just becomes part of the fabric of the farm. It just disappears into the farm. Meaning that a grower doesn't have to wake up in January and come up with a plan to go out and change a bunch of batteries out in the field because he's got, you know, valves that won't work or sensors that won't detect things. And this is kind of where we've, we've made our, you know, spent, spent quite a bit of our time in the IP. Our, our device harvests energy. We don't have any device, any batteries in it. Uh, it's designed to last for a long, long time. And we've spent a lot of time really working on the optimization of power. So I can take my product in a vineyard, for example, and I can install it on on uh, the trellis wires underneath the vines. And that device will harvest year in, year out, summer, winter, um, good weather and bad, enough energy to do everything it's been programmed to do. And by doing that, uh, the farmer doesn't have to come out and remove a bunch of equipment to harvest or doesn't have to worry as he goes through the field 
to uh, till that he's got to move stuff around because it's it's sitting on the ground or it's it's uh, somehow in the way of what he's trying to do. And so, you know, being seamless and unobtrusive is is one of the key points that 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 makes Waterbit different. And then, you know, we've really solved the networking problem in a way that makes it feasible to cover large farms and large operations. You know, those are those are areas where we drew heavily on our, our background, the team that we've that we've assembled here. We have some phenomenal semiconductor, very low power engineering savvy individuals. We've got some guys that have um, deep, deep expertise in networking. And I think we've been able to solve really quite elegantly those technical challenges. So does the sensor, uh, because it's, you know, internet connected, does the sensor automatically adjust the valve to that region, to that zone? Today, the answer is no. Um, we uh, are prototyping what we kind of call closed loop control, which is exactly what you just said. So being able to put a sensor or a set of sensors into a region in a farm and then take those sensor inputs and modulate the irrigation. Hmm. And that's coming. Um, I can tell you that the vision for the company uh, where we want to get to is what we refer to as autonomous irrigation. And the idea behind autonomous irrigation is that we can gather a tremendous amount of information about the, the water that's available at the soil, the stress of the plants. You know, we can get uh, information on flow rates and pressure. Uh, we can understand stresses that can be viewed through imagery, uh, leak detection, and that sort of thing. But take all of those inputs um, and then be able to analyze those inputs in the context of the performance of that crop in that field previously. And using all of that information, come up with a, a watering or an op, uh, a water application algorithm that, that leads to ultimately the, the, the best possible results. And that's where we're trying to get to. I, I think that's a giant problem. It's a problem that will take us quite some time to get to, but uh, that's where we're trying to get to. And, and as we move forward, we're, we're taking uh, steps and, um, you know, adding to the, to the R&D effort that, that R&D activities that we do, you know, to take the incremental steps towards that end goal and, you know, and to prove it out as we go. I was recently talking to another IoT startup in Apis Protect. They do IoT for beehives. She was sharing about the same issue of connectivity and, and kind of saying things are getting a lot in, in general. Are you seeing that too? Uh, or how do you solve the connectivity issue? I think things are getting better in the sense that there are technical protocols that are now available better suited for use in agriculture. And, and I think that, you know, ev everything has trade-offs and, and going through the different networking uh, technologies that are available today and figuring out how those can be used in a way that uh, makes it easier for the grower to adopt uh, is, I, I think, going to be a continually um, evolving element of agriculture for some time to come. There are some things coming down the pipe, but there's, there's you know, if you, if you do reading uh, uh, today, you'll see a lot of conversation about, um, you know, new entrance into the satellite communication world. Mm -hmm. You know, the major telecom providers in the U.S. are moving forward and moving towards 5G, all of which we kind of expect to add to that, um, you know, that toolkit of connectivity. And it, it is definitely getting better. I can tell you that for sure. But but we've got a long ways to go still. It, it There are still places where it's a challenge. There's still you know, there are, there are still uh, challenges that have to be overcome in some of these farms. But um, I, I can tell you today, we can come in, we can stand up uh, uh, a gateway 
and cover an area of, of something like seven and a half square miles. And all of that work can happen in about three and a half hours. So it's, it's not difficult for us today to come in and create a very, very wide area of coverage that the grower can use. Um, and it's also very cost effective. So it's, it's not like it's a huge challenge. And, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that someday we'll get to the point where we just walk out in the field and stick a device anywhere in the field and it just simply works. That'd be the, that would be the, you know, the aha woo moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, I always ask for permission to ask at least one really dumb question every interview. And my, <laughs> and my really dumb question for you is exactly how are these sensors placed in the field? I mean, you know, is it just like you, they're, they're a stake into the soil or, you know, how exactly does that work? So today the sensors that we're using are, are um, we, we actually source those through third parties. There's two companies, two partners that we primarily work with, a company uh, called AquaCheck and one called Syntec. And we use each probe differently and, and in different situations. But, you know, the process for figuring out how you're going to, to put a probe in is, is kind of straightforward. We, we take a look at the field. We try to understand what the different soil types are in the different areas. And then, uh, in essence, you, you just go out and you auger a hole down into the, you know, you, you figure out where you're going to locate the probe. And then once you figure that out, you just go ahead and you go out and auger a hole into the ground and, and then install the, the probe. And, and um, depending on the type of probe, there are very specific sort of implementation uh, methodologies that you use, you'll you know, create a, a little bit of a slurry to, to make that probe, make sure that probe has got a nice fit and uh, good contact with the soil. And, and then in it goes. And I, and I can tell you that, you know, from our experience, if probes are installed right, uh, they work incredibly well. They give you a great, you know, very good, very good measure, and they tend to be reliable over long, long periods of time. So I think that soil moisture is a, is a, there's so much that you can learn uh, about how your system works just by looking at how the water moves through the soil. Uh, I, I think that any grower today, you know, whether you irrigate or don't irrigate or whether you use drip irrigation or pivot irrigation definitely could benefit from uh, beginning to collect soil moisture data because you'll, you'll learn something about the land, you'll learn something about the soil, and you'll learn something about how your system is working. And, and uh, you know, from that, you can glean insights that'll, that'll give you a little bit of an advantage. How deep does the, the probe go? Uh, they come in a number of different lengths. I think the longest uh, probe that we install today is 90 centimeters. And on a 90 centimeter probe, there's, I think you can get up to eight different sensors. A, a, a typical installation for us would be between 24 and 48 inches with either three or six sensing depths on it. Hmm. And you know, you typically will match the sensor to the crop, and uh, in particular, you you want to match the sensor to the rooting depth of the crop that you're dealing with. So if you're in um, almonds or pistachios or you know wine grapes or or table grapes, you're you're going to go with a longer probe, something that gets down deep because those those uh, those plants, you know, will reach down deep for for water. Yeah, you know, we've done strawberries and uh, in rice, we use a 24 inch probe, for example, just trying to look at, at uh, where the water level is in the field. Yeah, you just you just match the probe length to the to the to the crop and the rooting depth. Do you see yourself always being focused on on the, the water problem specifically? Uh, obviously, there'd be a reason to have a sensor in a farmer's field for other things, uh, you know, be it uh, temperature or, or things like, you know, nutrition, salinity. I'm sure there's several others. I'm just not thinking of right now. Do you, do you see yourself expanding to those other uh, sort of problems or, or really just the water problems big enough that it, it, it makes sense just to focus on that? If you look at our solution, we come in and we 
enable a grower with a network. And then once that network is in place, you can tie an awful lot of things off of it. And I think that uh, our focus today is definitely on water. It's definitely on irrigation, but I, I can see us moving into fertigation, fertigation systems, into monitoring assets that are that are used on the farm. Um, I think, you know, maybe the first assets we might go after, for example, would be things like uh, the availability of fertilizer or pump stations or the operation of the uh, of filtration systems. I think that I think that our view of the world is that is if we can incorporate more of what the farmer needs to understand from an informational perspective on his farm, bring that into one common infer- interface will create more value for the grower. And I, I think that um, I think we will definitely uh, over time add sensors, you know, weather sensors and that kind of thing that begin to give the grower a much broader viewpoint of what's happening on their farm. It's wild, but it's not that far-fetched to think that there might be a sensor like this that can not only turn on and off the water, open and close the valve, but also could call a an autonomous, you know, tractor over to take care of something. It's it's uh, It sounds so bizarre, but it, we're, it doesn't seem like the technology is that far out. I can tell you that um, I can tell you that there's already work being done by uh, robotics companies here in the Bay Area and elsewhere. I, it, look, that's that's where things are going. I think that um, you know one beautiful thing about a robot, or one beautiful thing about these types of systems, is they don't get tired. They they monitor, they they watch, they do what they're told to do. And uh, you know, I, I I think you're exactly right. I you know I can foresee a day when we take data from uh, maybe a drone or from an overflight image. We couple that up with, you know, soil moisture data or maybe even humidity data from a particular place in the crop. And then we dispatch a, a drone or a robot to go in and, and do high, t- you know, do some high resolution imaging to, to look for, for uh, particular disease threats. So, I mean, you, you can begin to, you can big, begin to imagine a world where a farm really has a, you know, a number of different technologies that are, that are just continuously um, looking and monitoring and proactively, uh, you know, addressing issues as they come up in the field. Right. So fascinating. Um, I, I want to touch on because uh, I have a personal interest and there's been a lot of listeners of the show be interested in kind of funding innovations and funding good ideas and in the investment process. And you all announced uh, last last year, you had raised uh, a, a Series A round of over $11 million. Just curious about how that experience has been for you and as much as you can share about um, how that came about. Well, I can tell you that funding and accessing the resources that you need to be able to build a company and particularly a company in, in agriculture is a challenge. It's a, it's a And it's a challenge no matter what type of industry you're in. And um, I've worked for uh, startups for a number of years. One, you know, we, we had a kind of a fortuitous event occur to Waterbit sort of early in our creation. We, we were building some early prototypes and we literally through uh, a connection made by a sales uh, person at one of the, one of the vendors that we used, uh, we were able to 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 get an in- introduction to a gentleman by the name of T.J. Rogers, and and T.J. Rogers is a, uh, he's an entrepreneur. He founded uh, Cypress Semiconductor, took that company public, I think in '87, I believe it was, uh, might have been '88, but took the company public, and then and then was uh, running the company uh, right up until when we we met him, and we met him just about the time that he was retiring from Cypress Semiconductor, but. 
but but TJ's uh, uh, operates a vineyard. He has a, a vineyard called Clodi Latec. Um, he has a um, and and he has a, a really strong interest in the intersection of you know farming and agronomy and technology because of his background with semiconductors. And and we were able to get hooked up with. Um, with TJ and TJ has been very instrumental in, in helping lead, you know, provide leadership with the company, helping us with, uh, with different connections as both an investor, he's the chairman of the board. And, you know, one of the benefits that we got from our interaction and from our work with, with TJ was that, that TJ, you know, brought people from within his network to us. And that, that helped us tremendously uh, as we were going through the fundraising process. But I can tell you that, that fundraising is, it is hard work. Our current investor has made the comment to us that you can either fundraise or run a company, but you can't do both. And I can tell you that, that that is true. You know, fundraising is a full-time job at this level. You have to be dedicated to it. You've got to be willing to hear no. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, you hear no a lot. And so you've got to be resilient. You got to believe in what you're doing. And, you know, I think uh, one other thing I would say is that investors are looking, you know, investors are creatures that match patterns and they're looking for, you know, they're looking for information on technical feasibility, technical capability, market fit, traction, depending on the stage of the company. You know, as a as an entrepreneur, you you know need to do your homework. You need to know your numbers, and you need to understand as much as you can about the industry that you're trying to serve, about the technology that you're using, and be able to really convey what it is that you're trying to accomplish it uh, accomplish confidently. You know, I would just say, look, if you're out there and you're trying to to start a company and you're trying to fund it, have a vision, have a dream, and then go for it. Don't just settle on the all the nos you're getting. Yeah take a knock to the chin, get up and do it again. Yeah. Excellent. Thanks so much, Leif. I really appreciate you being on the show. If somebody wants to learn more about Waterbit, maybe they think it'd be a good solution for their operation. Uh, is it just waterbit.com? That's right. Waterbit.com. Okay. We will send them there. Really appreciate this, Leif. It's been uh, been a pleasure. You bet. Thanks, Tim. Thanks again to Lee for being on the show and exciting to watch what's happening out there with Waterbit and wish them continued success in their startup venture. Also want to give a special shout out to listener Tino Rossi, who made that interview possible and put Waterbit originally on my radar. So thank you. It's been fun to see this podcast turn into more of a community where I'm hearing from those of you who listen uh, with guest ideas, with topic ideas, and just uh, general feedback on the show. And I really do appreciate that. No five minute farmer here on this episode, uh, but just want to say thank you once again for your time and attention and your interest in agriculture innovation. We'll be back next week with another Ag Innovator. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast. If you like what you heard here today, I'd love to connect with you further. Go over to futureofag.com. That's futureofag.com. And let me know a good email address for you so we can keep in touch. Also, you'll be able to check out a ton of bonus content on the blog while you're there. Otherwise, make sure you're subscribed to the show so you can catch another fascinating ag innovator here next week. Music.